Hey, Rowan, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Kaveh Shahruz. Um, Kaveh is a lawyer and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Um, hi, Kaveh, thank you for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. It's really good to be on with you. Um, so I'd mentioned to you earlier, um, like I've been following you for a little bit, and I think it started around like the the first set of protests in Iran when the, the women first started uh, protesting with like the White Wednesdays and I I'm trying to remember the name of the woman who got arrested on top of the uh, power station and then now more in general like you you put out a lot about foreign politics especially relating with Canada and Iran so I was wondering if you know, we could start with there and mm -hmm. the first thing I'm going to ask is have you, did you see that speech that I don't know where he was a He's a member of the European Parliament. I don't know from where, but he was speaking some form of Serbo creation uh, or so. Oh, the, the the one that just was released today. Yeah. Uh, address, addressing Justin Trudeau. Yeah. 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 I think he's a member of the European Parliament from Croatia. That's that, that's my recollection. As well. Yeah. I, I saw clips of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just thought that was great that it was like. Yeah, was, yeah, I mean, he, he really took Trudeau to task. Now, mind you, um, I, I, I can't speak to that guy's credibility. Yeah, um, but it it does say something about the fact that Trudeau is now being regarded as a person that kind of stands in the way of, of freedom in in much the world. Um, I think some of it is a little hyperbolic, but some of it I think is well deserved. I think the reaction that we saw to the trucker protest was so um, well, in some ways erratic because it, you know there was there was no reaction initially, and then followed by an incredible overreach, um, declaring an emergency when. In reality, there really wasn't one. So I, I think Trudeau really kind of deserves a lot of the criticism that he's getting. Yeah. I mean, it was just in contrast to what he said himself about protecting democracy and this and that. Yeah. I, I think that's a, <laughs> that's a real global challenge, right? Like these people that, that champion liberalism at, when push comes to shove are not really standing up for it. So, yeah. And I, th I think, you know, I, I'm happy to kind of go in whatever direction you want to go in, but this has been sort of one of the, the threads that runs through um, my writing, both on social media and like articles I publish and so on. It's, it's the fact that um, the liberal left in the West um, does not actually stand for the principles that it claims to stand for um, much of the time. You know, when, when the rubber really hits the road, they kind of abandon those principles. And especially when it comes to you know, the Middle East, um, a lot of the liberal left is is more than happy to kind of abandon their brothers and sisters in those countries. Oh no, totally. Okay, the, this is kind of why I got into all this is because I criticized Islam and I got called a white supremacist, and I was like, "What the hell? Like, where's this coming from?" I, I don't know. Have you read uh, Nick Cohen's book, uh, "What's Left"? I have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, I think I think what we're seeing now is just a continuation of what he wrote about in that book. Like there is that there's, you know, they, they just see Islam as a, you know, that's a Brown person's religion and it's. You know, yeah. There, have, there, there is in my view, um, a lot of racism embedded in much of progressive thought. Let me, let me get back to that in a second. So, um, perhaps it's relevant to say that I started out, I would say like a decade ago, if you were to talk to me, um, maybe a little bit more than a decade ago, I would have identified myself as a person of the left. Um, 
probably actually on, I don't want to say extreme left, but, but very, very much in the leftist camp. And over time, I think I had to undergo the kind of shift that Nick Cohen is talking about, where you kind of realize that the left no longer represents um, the principles that, that you hold dear. Now, mind you, I think over time, the more I think about it, the more I've studied history, I've come to realize that maybe the left never really stood for those things. I mean, you look at uh, where the left was in the 30s and 40s, in support of Stalin, for example. Um, it may have rhetorically paid a lot of lip service to certain principles, but it certainly didn't abide by them. Um, and so my, my journey was as somebody who kind of was on the left, but then observed what the left was really about. And, and not just not the pieties that it spoke about, but uh, the reality of kind of who would defend it. And over time, I've come to kind of break with the left and I no longer think of myself in those terms. And, and to connect it back to what we're saying, I think it embedded in a lot of leftist discourse um, and, and left, I, I use that term fairly loosely, I just mean kind of liberal left. Um, there is a certain racism, I think, embedded in their way of thought where they are happy to tolerate for brown-skinned people treatment and behavior that they would never tolerate for themselves, right? They are happy to condemn Muslim women, for example, to live under the type of patriarchy that would be simply unthinkable to them. Um, much of the left in the West now is has moved beyond kind of standing for women's rights. It's moved even beyond um, gay rights, which was the next frontier. And now we're fighting battles about pronouns and gender identification and so on. Just like very, very advanced stuff, whether or not good or bad, I don't want to kind of get into that debate, but that's where we're at. And women in the Middle East, where I come from, I was born in Iran and, and raised there until I was about 10, are still fighting a battle where they're not considered fully human. Um, their rights are like quite literally they're considered half of that. This is that that's not a hyperbolic or uh, figurative language. Literally under the law, they're considered half of men. They still can't determine for themselves what clothing to wear. And the left has been the Western left has been more than happy to kind of abandon them to that fate. Talking about the fact that like, well, you know, this is Islam. This is their culture. Even be even though women themselves are crying out saying, no, 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 we want solidarity from the West. We want your help. We want your support. The left has abandoned them. Um, and that's not, you know, even though I no longer think of myself as a leftist, I still do think of myself as an internationalist in a great many ways. And I, I think, you know, morality requires that if I think, you know, there's a you know, good life in Canada requires equality and freedom, then that good life also in Iran and Saudi Arabia and, you know, India, where, where have you, um, people demand the same things and I ought to be fighting for the same things, um, Anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't even know what the question was. Right? Oh, no, no, that, that's fine. It's, <laughs> uh, it's great. Like, no, but okay. What you're talking about there, like, yeah, I've seen it myself and I've said the same thing and yeah, left, right, liberal, conservative, we're just like, have lost kind of all meaning that they're just, you know, what there's roughly 40 million people in Canada. If you ask them those questions, like, what do those words mean? Like you'll get 40 million different answers. It's just, yeah. you know, like I just look at it. Are you, are you are you like enlightenment values are you like a liberal yeah in that that's, sense? that's or are, absolutely right or you're authoritarian yeah no yeah i think that's a that's a much better uh litmus test of people as opposed to left right i mean those concepts used to mean things but the fights that the left and right used to have mm -hmm. at least you know 10 years ago about taxes or military spending or what have you those are such minor fights now 
uh, I don't I don't care what your views are on taxes. Like if you want to ban free speech, to me, that's a much more important distinction than whether you think the marginal tax rate should be at, you know, 15 percent or 30 percent. Like who cares? Really? Yeah. There are much bigger battles to be fought. No, but that's just it. But like the, what you're talking about with how the left has gone off the rails on some of these things. And it's not it's not just with Islam. I mean, there was that New York Times article or is an opinion piece in. 2020 where they basically said that you know democracy in hong kong would be another form of colonialism and it was just better that they'd stay china and and okay fine it's an opinion piece and they're allowed to publish it but you know the outcry when a senator whatever it was named cotton yeah yeah, you know sending the uh, national guard like you know the, the hissy fit that was thrown there but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm 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 totally with you. I, I I don't know the particular Hong Kong piece you're talking about, but um, I, I have no problem with the New York Times giving you know to use modern language to give a platform to the view that Hong Kong should be part of China. Whatever, that's that's an opinion that some people hold, and it's worth debating. And you know, the newspaper record should certainly reflect that. The problem, as you uh, correctly pointed out, is that you know only certain sets of ideas are now permitted. Um, in public discourse. And I'm not talking about crazy like neo-Nazis that are not permitted in the Bloomberg record. I, I agree, you know, there's some ideas that are so beyond the pale. You've got a sitting Senator um, who has a direct line into the White House and the White House is talking about, you know, sending in the troops to calm very violent admittedly, protests. And the New York Times deems that opinion to be so horrendous that the person that ran it should be fired. Um, then I think we've, we've gone off the rails. So we've really lost the plot. Yeah. And I mean, like I want to bring this back to Canada because the reaction over the last two years in protests and then culminating with the truckers, I was just, I was looking at it. And it was just the coverage of the first nations protests in 2020, you know, then the BLM protests and the few small riots that we had, like, I think there were a couple of nights in Montreal and, there are a few in Toronto, but they weren't anything like what was in the U.S. Um, you know, then the church is being vandalized. Like, in the media themselves and the government, like, I'm not saying they should have done to any of those protests, like, you know, seizing bank accounts or anything like that, but, like, you know, the reaction for those as opposed to the truckers, no. you know, again, that's the left not supporting what they you know used to like these were working class people yep. you know most of them are in unions and you would think that would be what the left is supporting but they're not and you know like i said i'm not calling for emergency measures on any of the other protests but it's just that that difference in reactions it's, it's... yeah it, it, i mean the reaction to the trucker protests and I, I you know i think of the trucker protests as a couple of different phases there was kind of the, the start of it, and then it continued on. And as it continued on, I think, anyway, my view of it is that it, it became more of a problem. Like it became much more of a nuisance. It was much more of a radical crowd. Um, but certainly when it started, I entirely agree with you. I mean, it was, it was large numbers of working people, very peaceful. I didn't necessarily agree with every position, you know, especially the kind of the anti-vax stuff. Like there was, there was certainly a hint of that. And I didn't agree with that. But 
you know, within the marketplace of ideas, I, I think, you know, those protesters represented a healthy part of the Canadian public, right? And they, and they had support across the country. But before they even arrived in Ottawa, the narrative that was presented by politicians and the media was, you know, here comes a convoy of racists and Nazis, and we got to be afraid, and we got to shut these guys down as soon as we can. You had the prime minister stand up and, you know, call them racists and misogynists and say, you know, these are a, a fringe minority of people that hold unacceptable views, which I, I find to be a shocking statement. I don't think there was enough attention paid to that phrase on unacceptable views, like in a liberal democracy. <clears throat> excuse me, in a liberal democracy, if you're not talking about harming other people, but you're simply disagreeing with government policy, um, that, that should not be deemed an unacceptable view. Like that is that is fully acceptable and fully something that, that people ought to be debating. Um, you know, these, these are media figures and politicians that would never, ever speak about BLM protests this way or First Nations protests this way. Um, even though sort of objectively speaking, those latter protests have probably been more more violent um, in, in several cases. Now, that's not to say the, the, you know, the merits of these protests are all exactly the same. They're not. But again, within a liberal democracy, our, the role of the media shouldn't be to put their thumb on the scale and advocate for, for one set of actors um, against another simply because of their political difference. Um, we regrettably increasingly just don't have a neutral press that uh, reports the facts and just lets readers decide. We get very heavy-handed um, filtered news, and it's that has very negative implications um, for a liberal democratic society. On the one hand, you will have um, people that are misinformed because the media lies to them, and on the other, you have large numbers of people that become increasingly frustrated, they lose trust in the media, and they start listening to alternative sources. Sometimes those alternative sources are good, um, and they tell them the truth, and sometimes they're crackpots, and um, so that's why you see this increasing level of conspiracy thinking um, I think in our, in our polity these days. Like this, my contention has always been that with this is like the more censorship you're going to have. And I am worried about some of the bills coming down the pipe, but like the more censorship you get and the more you block that, the more conspiracy theories you're going to get. Like, I mean, it just, you know, again, I take a look at the middle East and I'm just like, well, just, yeah. you know, there's conspiracy theories about everything out there. Yeah. And, you know, in, in some cases, I mean, like in Iran, they can always point back to like, oh, well, look, you know, the CIA did that with Mossadegh, so they're doing it now yeah. again, right? So yeah, yeah, they have certain things they can point to at the same point too, but yeah. yeah no, that, okay, like the, the, the vaccination, right? Now, mm-hmm. someone asked me my opinion. Yeah, I think they're safe. Yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, I think overall they're a good thing. I think you should get them. No problem. But I can understand why people... I just don't trust them. Like, like you said, like we were, we're losing trust. It's, everything's politicized. And I mean, the same people who are telling you to take the vaccine are also telling you that, you know, men can give birth. So if you're denying basic biology, why should I trust you on a vaccine? Yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of places where I think um, our scientific and our cultural elite have let us down. I mean, we don't even need to talk about the, you know, men giving births thing, um, just on COVID alone, the sheer number of times that, that officials have changed position, right? So at the heart of it in, in 2020, in the summer of 2020, um, we were told that any get together was awful. And it was, you know, the equivalent of, of killing grandma. 
people were denied the ability to get together for funerals. You know, people had dying parents in hospitals they couldn't visit. And it was just deemed abhorrent to spend any time with, in the company of other people. And all of a sudden protests broke out. And because the politics of those protests align with progressive leftist views, suddenly you had thousands of public health figures signing letters saying, no, 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 it's completely fine to go out in large numbers and stand shoulder to shoulder and protest. Um, and it was, just, it was just crazy. I mean, somebody just watching that would say, well, what are you talking about? Um, we've had, you know, initially our, our officials telling us, no, travel, travel bans don't make sense. And then immediately it became obvious that, that was crazy. Um, we were told that, you know, vaccines would prevent infection. But now it turns out that, you know, the science of all, obviously they didn't know those things at the time. But the certainty with which we are presented evidence um, and any view that kind of cuts against the official narrative is somehow deemed um, to be misinformation and, and just wrong and it's racist and it's patriarchal and it ought to be shut down. And then, you know, you watch within, within a matter of weeks, official thinking of changes and suddenly we're all supposed to pretend that this didn't take place, that we weren't just told two weeks ago the exact opposite of what we're being told today. Obviously, you know, when you run a public health system this way, people aren't going to believe you when you tell them that a vaccine is safe. Um, and I say this again, you know, just like you were saying, I say this to somebody who's triple vaxxed. I, you know, I, my wife is a physician. She's been on the front lines of this. I don't think COVID is a hoax. I think it's a very real thing. I think, you know, a lot of people needlessly died um, and continue to die because they're not vaccinated. But, you know, our, our officials and our media really have to take some responsibility here. Um, the orthodoxy that they try to impose um, and the, the speed with which that orthodoxy changes and we're all supposed to kind of go along with it. Um, this is not conducive to a healthy liberal democratic society. It just, it just isn't. And um, as you say, I mean, one of the results of that is just conspiracy thinking taking hold because, you know, when, when the officials lie to you, well, then you begin to look for alternative explanations. Basically like infantilization. So it's mommy and daddy are going to look after you and we're going to keep you ignorant of certain facts. But I mean, even with the vaccines, if they'd come out and said, you know, okay, normally we test vaccines for five years and then we, you know, then we get the okay and we have all, we have all the clinical data. I mean, these basically came out in a matter of months, you know, like it was less than a year, <clears throat> you know, I, I, again, like I, I, all these people are saying, oh, all these clinical tests, I'm like, you, ha you haven't done the same level of clinical trials that you would for other vaccines. And I know like, yes, the MNR, uh, MRNA ones are different than other vaccines but still the johnson johnson one got pushed out just as fast and that's the old type of vaccine so like it's just they've just been honest from like day one and said mm -hmm. here the deal you know give it to the most vulnerable give it to the people who have you know like you know other conditions that can impact COVID and all that and but if the, you were a healthy male or whatever health healthy person in your you know, 20s to like maybe 40s. I think you were okay. I don't want to say you're your protector or anything like that, but I think you had a fairly good shot. And I think if they were honest and they gave people a choice, I think you would have less hesitancy to it. I think more people might have just taken the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's right. Certainly with with vaccines, that's the case. The other example that comes to mind is with respect to masking. Um, if you remember at the outset, we were told, you know, don't wear masks. They don't do anything. Um, and then it turned out that the reason they were saying that is because they were worried that there just wasn't enough, weren't enough masks available 
And like, what an example of infantilization, right? Like, you just think the public is far too stupid to be able to understand that, like, look, we've got a resource here that's finite, and you know, healthcare workers needed more than others. I think if if they had been honest, um, you would have seen people willingly kind of, you know, providing those those resources to, to healthcare workers. We saw incredible acts of sacrifice um, from the public in the face of this pandemic. But when you get lied to, um, obviously you're not going to, you know, you get lied to once and the second time you're just not going to believe the people are telling you these lies. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think um, if our public health authorities and our media had been more honest with respect to the vaccine and the limitations of our knowledge, um, I think uptake of the vaccine might've been slower, but you wouldn't see this level of kind of dug in resistance because at this point, I feel like some of the resistance isn't even about the science anymore. Now it's just like, excuse my language, but it's just like, fuck you. I'm not going to listen to you telling I'm Sorry. I don't know if you can put that on your podcast. Oh, that's but, fine. I don't <laughs> but like, like some of it isn't even about science anymore. It's just like, it's just resi- resistance and resentment to um, the way the authorities have kind of been authoritarian in their approach to this. And I think we could have avoided that, frankly. Like I like I said, you you tweet quite a bit about Iran. Now that Biden's going pulling back out of everything Trump had done, mm-hmm. and Canada's pretty much just following suit. Like I, I'm just okay, I'm just looking with what happened with Ukraine, and then you know Russia and Iran are talking. They've always been kind of friendly, but what struck me as well was Saudi basically just telling Biden, no, 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 we're going to keep pumping out and you know dealing with. Like, what do you see with like how Biden's softened up, you know, the the sanctions on Iran, with what's going on now yeah. with Russia? Like, like, do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Or? I, I I certainly do. I've I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, so there there's there's a couple things going on here. You know, when when the war broke out in Ukraine, I thought to myself, well, that's that's got to be the end of the the Iran deal, right? Like mm-hmm. we now see the argument that the anti-Putin crowd has been making for years and years. Um, it, it's, it's been proven completely right. Like they, you know, they kept saying, people like Bill Browder, for example, Gary Kasparov, kept saying for years, look, this guy, you, you, just, you cannot sit down and negotiate with this guy. You have to understand something about the mindset of dictators like this. And the more dovish crowd just ignored that and just kind of went along, expect, you know, denied the fact that this kind of war could possibly happen. And of course it happened. And my take on it was like, well, obviously we're going to learn the lesson from this and we're going to apply it to Iran because lots of people like me, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a minor figure, but, but people with more clout have been arguing, look, you, you cannot take these guys at their word. Um, they will say anything to you to get relief from sanctions. And once they have that relief, once they have the money, they're going to go back. They're going to become the aggressive, you know, dictatorship and expansionist power that they that they want to be that that they that they openly talk about being. Um, but goes to show how how little I know, right? Like, not only has the has the talk continued, but it's it remains to be it remains sort of like the one area where Russia is actually not sanctioned, not isolated, right? The Biden administration has been willing. So, you know, they've, they've isolated Russia in virtually everything except this one area because they so desperately want to get back into the Iran deal um, for reasons that I quite honestly just, just cannot comprehend other than the fact that they want to get back into it because Trump got out of it. 
um, and they just want to say, you know, that, that we had this commitment to reversing um, Trump's position. I am no fan of Trump, as you would know um, from from reading my writing. Um, but on on Iran, I mean, he he had it right. He understood that this regime, in its very DNA, is mayhem and destruction and murder and torture and you know all sorts of awful things. And this is a regime that cannot be bargained with. It cannot be induced to behave better through concessions. I think what Trump understood instinctively, perhaps just by virtue of who he was, was that there are certain regimes that respond only to pressure. And I think the maximum pressure campaign that he began, um, I don't think it had enough time to kind of reach its natural conclusion, but it was, it was really the right approach. It was, it was based on a correct understanding of this regime. Um, and regrettably, since Biden has come to power, uh, they have tried very hard to reverse it. The, the, the personnel they've put in place, the you know special envoy that deals with Iran is a, is a person who is sort of on the record, basically talking about the fact that this you know this conflict is largely America's fault, and, and we ought to make peace with Iran. Um, to the point where others who, who I deem to be apologists that were part of the special envoys team, they have stepped away saying like, this is, we're just making far too many concessions to Iran. Um, right now, as we speak, you and I, there's talk of removing Iran's revolutionary guards from the, from the terror list. Um, other, you know, officials associated with the Iranian regime are being, you know, it's being talked about that they're going to be removed uh, from the sanctions list. And, all of it to get a deal that sets Iran back in getting nuclear weapons by just a few years. So Iran, all they have to do is just wait it out for a few more years. Um, and then they have a perfect and very clear path uh, to, you know, uh, obtaining nuclear weapons. And to me, that's just madness. And to me, our approach ought to be putting every possible pressure to change this regime. This is a regime that you cannot really realistically in the long term do business with. I know that the women have been protesting for a while now. Do you see any chance of anything like that from like a grassroots level, like another revolution? But the thing with revolutions is, is you, you can't tell they're going to happen until they happen. Um, but the anger that's necessary, it, it may not be sufficient for a revolution, but it's certainly necessary for a revolution. And that anger is there. Um, you know, the Iranian people have illustrated over and over again over the past 40 years that they don't want this regime, certainly within the last decade or so, the sheer number of protests that you've seen, it, you know, would suggest to you that this regime has almost no public legitimacy anymore. Um, and the, the protests that you see are massive. They're increasingly sort of violent and they, they're occurring in places that you would normally think would be kind of strongholds of the regime. They happen in rural areas, um, in smaller provinces, in places that are fairly religious. Um, and they happen for reasons that are largely economic in nature, right? Like, you know, these are not college students going out to protest for free speech. Important though it is, I don't think like the demand for free speech or voting rights is probably not sufficient to, to overthrow a government. But these are people going out, you know, the last round of protests that we had, I think it was you know, six months to a year ago, um, was in Iran's um, southwestern province of Khuzestan. And people were going out and protesting because they, they literally don't have water, right? And you can't 
like I, this is a regime that can't possibly be responsive to these people's demands because it, it is so corrupt and it has so mismanaged Iran's economy that it can't possibly provide for the needs of its people. And there is a point at which people are hungry enough and thirsty enough and unemployed enough that your threats won't work, that your attempts to clamp down won't work. Um, and I think we're beginning to, to approach those levels where people are unafraid to come out in the streets and they protest because literally they can't feed their kids. They can't, they don't have drinking water. Like, what are they going to do? Bullets don't frighten them. Now, all those things, that level of rage may not be sufficient. You know, there, there may be, you know, there's need for external actors to get involved and help and provide support, and, you know, help these people lead their own revolution. Um, but I, I think that anger is certainly there and, uh, yeah, with, with the right leadership and with the right international support, I think this regime uh, can be toppled. I, I certainly hope so. Not defending the mullahs and the ayatollahs at all here. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I wouldn't want to see like what happened to Iraq happen to Iran. You know, mm-hmm. like, again, I don't know. Okay, regime change, yes. Like, my take on it would be it has to be built by the people like you can't just go in and say here's democracy this is what you need this is how you set yep. it up i yep. think it's got to go in and say here are your options yep. this is how you can set it up these are your things like take what you want or mix and match but i think it should yep. be decided on by the people like so like when we when things like regime change come around i always get worried because i mean you know it's gonna have to be a u.s-led thing and they haven't been really all that great at it no, they, they have not. Um, I think one of the great injustices, I mean, the, the Bush administration committed a lot of injustices, but one of them that has long-term implications is they, they took the term regime change and through both malfeasance and incompetence, they made it such a dirty term. And I totally understand you know, your reluctance and the reluctance of a lot of people to, to talk seriously about regime change. So I'm always careful with my writing not to talk about regime change alone, but to talk about people-led regime change. Um, I don't think it's the role of the United States or Europe or Canada or anybody to lead regime change in Iran. That is undesirable. Um, I think it has bad long-term implications. It has bad short-term implications. Um, I think our role as an international community, be it states, be it civil society, is to figure out what Iranian people themselves need to topple this regime. Um, And I think once they do that... um, then you will actually get a healthy democracy. I think a large reason why these efforts didn't work in Iraq was obviously because it was foreign-led, but also because Iraq, I, I don't think, had the kind of civil society, didn't have the infrastructure needed um, for a democracy to take hold. Iran is a little bit different than that. For, first of all, over the past 40 years, um, Iran has developed, I don't want to say a, a complete civil society, because this regime has tried very hard to crush civil society, but in resistance to this regime. This, you know, Iran is not North Korea, as, as dictatorial as it is. It's not North Korea. It's not Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Um, there has been some space and some room for women activists, for example, to, to come together, um, labor activists to, to do their thing. Um, so th- there, there are, you know, there are signs of, of life. There are signs of civil society there that could potentially replace this existing regime. Um, and Iran also has a has a history, like it, it, Iran has never been a democracy, but prior to the revolution, um, Iranian women, for example, were, you know, relatively emancipated, relatively free. I don't want to say completely free, but relatively so. Um, you know, there, there is a history to look back on and uh, a memory 
of of liberty in a way that I don't think really existed in in Iraq or Syria or other places. Um, and I think the the other part of it is like Iranians, they, they, you know, it's a very young population. It's a population that's not cut off from the world. It has, for the most part, it has had internet. It has had satellite TV. It understands the West. It understands um, democracy. It has seen it play out. Um, and there seems to be a real desire for it. Um, so I think those factors are all very different. I, 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 you know, I'm with you. I share the worry um, that Iran could potentially, you know, if played incorrectly, um, could turn into another Iraq, could turn into another Syria. And that's something that the Iranian regime always plays on, right? They, you know, their, their talking point is always like, don't get rid of us, because if you do, we will turn into Syria. Um, and that's a, that's a risk, but I, I don't think that's um, that risk is not as large as the regime would like us to believe, because I think there are fundamentally different factors at play in Iran that there were uh, than there were in Iraq and Syria. Okay, um, I don't know, I don't know if you'd be able to answer this or not, but like, I've spoken to a few people from um, other parts of the Middle East, and um, especially like North African. Um, so like, I guess more like the media region, like, like North African places going back to the left. So a lot of the woke stuff. Now I see it in like the MENA region. It's the post-colonial stuff mm-hmm. that's used as a pushback when you try to bring in, you know, quote unquote enlightenment values or Western values or what do you want to say? And it's like, Oh, that's just another form of colonialism. So the, the pushback is coming from like a post-colonial sense. Um, but one of the other th- places I see it too is, and I've spoken to a woman about it, is in India. Again, women don't have the full rights, and they're losing it because of basically gender theory and queer theory coming into India. And woke Western leftists are, oh, the hijras are, you know, proof that India's had transgender for you know, oh, you know thousands of years, blah blah blah. And so she's talking about that. So I was just wondering, like, have you noticed anything like that in Iran or, or in the region, like where, like we're exporting this really warped ideology that's yeah. more difficult to try to stress, you know, enlightenment values. Yeah. That's an interesting question. No, I, I haven't seen it much in, in Iran itself. I don't think some of these worst instincts um, of identity politics have made their way in in Iran. Now, certainly the, the Iranian regime uses a lot of this post-colonial talk that you're referring to um, in blaming everything um, on the West. And it, it's interesting because both the Iranian regime and, and a lot of its supporters in the West, you know, people that I track very closely, if you were to talk to them and say, you know, where, when does contemporary Iranian history start? They always started in 1953 um, with the coup. I know, you know, whether or not there really was a coup in 1953 is a, is a debated historical point. Um, but they start the history there where, you know, America certainly got involved in Iranian affairs and, and it led to, um, you know, the, the monarchy continuing on. Um, and the reason they do that, obviously, is because they want to pin a lot of the blame for what's happening around on the West, right? Um, and, and I think embedded in that is, is, a, certain, is a certain Orientalism, um, this notion that somehow you know, the, the primary agents in the Middle East are not Middle Eastern people themselves. Um, the primary agents are always, you know, Americans and the British and white people, really. They're the ones that kind of drive our history. Um, and I think it's false. I, it, it, you know, certainly colonialism has had, a, has had a role to play in the Middle East. Um, 
in, in Iran. Iran was never directly colonized, but certainly um, um, colonizing powers uh, played an important role. Um, but it, but history is a very complex thing, and Iranians themselves were were actors in their in their own in their own story. Um, so a lot of this is just you know it's, it's our own culture and it's our own politics, and there there has been for over a century a demand for liberal democracy, and it's just the demand for it is growing, and uh, increasingly as I was saying, you know you've got a young population that that wants it, that demands it, that is fighting for it. Um, so this this. Demand for liberalism is, is homegrown. It's indigenous, and I think it will prevail. Uh, the hopefully in the short term, but certainly in the long term. I'm just curious. Uh, do you know if Ideas Beyond Borders is working in Iran or? Uh, not to my knowledge. And they're they're a great group. I know what they do, but I, I I have not heard of them sort of translating things into Farsi. I think they're mostly focused on the Arab stuff. No, because I know they had started going out until like I know they've done Kurdish and I thought I thought they might have done Farsi, but I could have been wrong about that. Is, is that if, if they have, then I just yeah. don't know about it. I, I hope so. I mean, I think they do really important, great work. Yeah, no, I because I mean, yeah. Although well, I I know Faisal, so yeah, but yeah, I'm a huge supporter of them. They uh yeah, yeah. I mean like you know, I, I think we need more great organizations like that. But no, I was just curious about that. But um yeah. yeah, I mean with that's one thing like with Iran, like when you're talking about the history of it, like how the you know Iranians have been part of that themselves. So I know it's never been colonized, but I mean obviously Islam came in and like supplanted like Zoroastrianism, you know. And right. um I don't know how Baha'i fits in, in with there at all, but like I mean you know, like yeah, the, the, the Baha'i faith is a relatively new phenomenon, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's 18th or 19th century phenomenon. So, it, and, you know, the, the Islamic conquest happened several hundred years ago. So it's, it's a, quite a large gap between. Yeah, them. but so, I mean, you know, they might have never been colonized as such by, you know, the West, but yep. like, that's one of the things with the, with the whole colonialism thing. It's like, okay, but, you know, yeah, I'm from India, but technically part of my family at one point or other, because, you know, I've got, you know, like when I look at back, like I, I did my 23 at me. So, you know, I do have Middle Eastern blood and all that. And I'm like, mm-hmm. going, you know, um, like Southwestern Asian, whatever. And then they're just like, yeah. So part of my family at one point or other colonized India, like, you know, like there's, you know, like it's a very blind way of looking at colonization. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not blind. It's, as I said, I mean, it's an, it's an kind of an Orientalist way of looking at it because again, it doesn't put us at the center of our own story. It puts the West at the center of the story. Um, and we're only seen through sort of Western eyes, right? Like, yeah, I mean, Iran has certainly been colonized before. It's been colonized uh, by the Arabs. It was you know, captured even before then by the Greeks and subsequently, you know, by Genghis Khan and others. Like it's been conquered and, and controlled by many different powers. But we talk about it, and I even said it, um, we talk about it as not having been colonized only because it wasn't colonized by the West, right? As though West, you know, the West is central to every story everywhere on the globe. And it just, it just isn't, that just isn't true. Yeah. I don't know. There, I don't know if you've uh, heard that story or not, but it was, um, so this was in one of Douglas Murray's books, but apparently uh, a bunch of American the, like an American delegation went through the Middle East and this was when Arafat was still alive and they came to see him and there was a journalist there 
a journalist asked like why did they come to sh- you know show up and Arafat apparently started laughing and said well they came here to apologize for the crusade so apparently part of what this de- that delegation was doing was going around the Middle East apologizing for the crusades I'm like what does the U.S. have to do with the crusades? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Too many people in the Middle East are still thinking about the crusades, or you know, I mean, maybe you know Al Qaeda and groups like that that are really kind of just haven't moved on from that period. But by and large, I think the average person in the Middle East doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about you know what Europeans did. Certainly not Americans. Yeah, that, that's that's hilarious. Yeah, that's, I mean, like when you met you know, the West, it's like no, I, there is. Okay, I see that more. I see it in two different ways. Like, so if you want to talk roughly like, you know, right and left. So from the right, I see it more as, okay, you guys screwed things up. We're going to come fix it. And from the left, it's what you're talking about is no, 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 no. Yeah. We need to come fix it, but you didn't screw it up. We have to come screw it up for you. Cause you're not even capable of screwing up your own <laughs> shit. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that's a really good way. Of I'm like, it, yeah. I prefer the other way. Like, if I'm going to be looked down at, at least give me the agency to have screwed up my own shit. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> totally agree with you. No, no disagreement for me. Yeah, I think so much of, you know, so much of this this left woke stuff when it comes to people from our side of the world is is a mirror image of right wing racism, where it sees again no agency on our part and it sees us as purely kind of pawns of western power plays as though we're just we, we don't even exist we're just there to kind of do the bidding of white people and, and uh, be manipulated by them but yeah in some ways I, I agree with you it's almost worse than the right-wing racism because like it just it doesn't even consider us worthy enough of of having fucked up our own lives it's like other people fucked up for us so <laughs> no but, no but it's like I said, that, that's one of the things like that really bugs me but again kind of going back to what i was saying before that i look at okay the what china was doing the you know the belt and road initiative and they're you know basically just building a road from the mine to the port and like they own a couple of ports in africa you know yeah there was a conference in south africa in 2016 and it said it was called science must fall and they had two or three more of those then in 2021 um one of the universities there is now teaching black physics because they want to decolonize physics. I mean, (laughs) it's like Concordia university, like decolonizing light. I mean, it's. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's not sure what to say about that, except like there's, there's a lot of madness and a lot of our institutions. Again, I'm looking at like, we're exporting this stuff to countries it's like us telling developing nations, oh, don't go out and, you know, go fully like solar and wind because you don't need energy, right? Like, no, these people haven't, yeah. like these countries haven't developed to the point where they can look at other alternatives. Like, if you want to help them out, go build right. nuclear plants there. But, you know, like, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's like they want to take them to take that step with, okay, well, you know, you need to learn gender theory or you need to learn this. Like you need to decolonize your physics. Like, (laughs) no. Yeah. And (laughs) what a, what a time for us to be doing this stuff, right? Like we are, you know, in a geopolitical death match right now with, with China. Um, And it's a race um, 
with respect to science, with respect to you know computers and IT and all that. And China is developing at lightning pace, and we're spending all our time fighting about you know gender and yeah. uh, you know whether or not math is racist. And first of all, like obviously we're going to fall behind. And secondly, like you know we're in a, we're in a values fight um, with China, and we ought to be out there to every country in the world telling them why you know western culture is ultimately a good that they ought to um, adopt like democracy liberal you know liberal democracy all these things are good things um and instead we're we're so busy beating ourselves up about you know, historical sins and why we're awful and why we're white supremacists and racist it's not to say that we shouldn't grapple with our history but it's it's all out of proportion i feel like we're just you know I, I'm, I'm not terribly hopeful that we're going to win this battle um at the at the technological level and i certainly don't think at the values level I mean, okay, I, I understand what you're saying, and I'm like ter- I'm terrified of something like that as well. But the one thing I'll say is, the United States and Canada, to a lesser degree, had that imagination with the technology, whereas like China can duplicate, like they've been good at duplicating what other people have done. There's been no real innovation coming out of there, right? So. Mm-hmm if we can manage to turn around the way we're doing things, which it just doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. I think we can, like you said, if we can get back on the right track technologically wise, I think that spark of imagination that we have here that just isn't in China. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, a, a key part of innovation is the ability to think creatively and uh, democracy tends to foster creative thinking. Um, authoritarian, authoritarianism does not. Um, so we definitely have an advantage. I think that explains why we've, you know, developed at such a such a quick rate. Uh, the problem is that in order to innovate, in order to build things, in order to advance in science and technology, you also need to know math and science. Yeah. Right. And if you're spending all your time teaching your kids um, that math is racist. Um, and that's, um, you know, entrance exams that, you know, separate the smart kids from the less smart kids. And those things are racist. And every, every, every you know, element or every, uh, you know, thing we have of, of meritocracy is, is racist. Every method we have is if it's bad or racist or sexist or what have you. Ultimately, like all the imagination in the world is going to save us, right? That's, that's no, not all, but okay. He gets a lot of heat and sometimes deservedly, I guess, but uh, he was getting some heat for this. Like James Lindsay had tweeted out this math class and they showed some problems. Now, in and of themselves, the kids were learning how to do stats and fractions and percentages. Okay. But what was embedded in the question was how can you show that this disparity is racist? Now, I, again, I don't care if you want to say, well, can you show like how many people, you know, what percentage of black people got the job or whatever. If you wanted to show that, okay, the kid's doing that job, uh, that, that math problem, that's a different thing than saying, you know, how can you show that this disparity is racist it, or, or something along those lines that I have to look at, but it was basically in the question was written that the, because there's a disparity, then there's racism. And they just wanted them to show yeah. what the disparity was, which, okay, fine. You're teaching yeah. the kids how to do fractions and percentages, but it's, 
I also have that issue with it. When you're trying to put that, like that does not belong in a math class. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know this particular example, but I, I have seen examples along those lines. And I, I think it ties back to what I was just saying a minute ago, which is that, you know, in, in a, in a liberal democracy that's functioning well, there's a lot of room for creativity. And the reason for that is because people can think differently and, you know, occasionally fail and debate ideas and, and move forward. Regrettably, I, I think as the space for dissent shrinks in our society and there's only kind of one correct way of thinking, we're going to lose that, that advantage that we have because, you know, you, you can't, you can't think too creatively. You can't think too much outside of what is considered, you know, acceptable lines of thought in our society. So that's, that's certainly a yeah, danger. I, I, we're, we're certainly not at China levels, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a word. I can't remember who said it. Uh, it was, you know, either the West is going to change China or China is going to change the West. And I think with technology and, you know, like, like you mentioned the emergencies act, like freezing people's bank accounts and like how quickly you can get people kicked yeah. off social media and stuff. I mean, you know, yeah. you know, yeah, the China's changed the West a bit and it's, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer, but like the, the, the couple of bills that were coming out in Canada, like uh C11, then they're going to do the new yeah. version of C36. I don't know whatever that's going to be called. And, you know, C4 is bad enough with like, you know, affirmation only. And like with C16, like, like we're losing our speech rights in Canada incredibly fast. I mean, this NDP liberal coalition now, like, okay. So they're guaranteed to pass through any bill they want now. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. This, this alliance or whatever it is, it's not a coalition. It's a something. Um, it does worry me too. Um, for a variety of reasons, in in part because I think that the traditional role of the opposition is to hold the government to account. But if the NDP isn't going to be doing that, and it sounds like they they won't be, um, then yeah, I mean I think all sorts of bad legislation can come to pass. And I think some of that legislation, you know, some of the internet bills, for example, um, I, that's not really my area, but lots of people whose opinions I trust tell me that. Uh, this this closes the space for for dissent and disagreement online, and it gives the government sort of unfettered power um, to shut down speech that it dislikes, that's critical of it, or that uh, is kind of again outside progressive leftist lines. Um, so yeah, all all the more reason for people like you to be vigilant and and uh, keep alerting the world. I know. I mean, that's that's one thing I kind of harp on about. Like, no, but I mean, just. I, I, he's pushing like Trudeau's pushing forward those bills and he keeps, he's going to Europe and he's, you know, lecturing them about, you know, failing democracy. It's like, come on, man, you're, you're, you're completely destroying the right of people to speak. I mean, if I remember correctly from C36, it was, if someone was offended by what you posted online, you could face $75,000 fine and six months of house arrest. Now, it didn't necessarily have to break any laws in Canada. Just someone found it offensive. And it's like, you know, again, that's that's getting to authoritarian levels of censorship. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have to admit that I'm just not sufficiently well-informed on this topic to have, an, have a view. That, that seems outrageous to me if it is as presented, but it also seems so outrageous that i can't imagine what the rule being what you're describing maybe maybe okay, like, I like i said I've, I've stopped being surprised yeah no no i mean this was like i said this was when bill c36 was being proposed last time like i, I haven't 
seen anything about anything new coming out so i don't want to i don't know if it's anything like that's on and now but yeah. like i know uh yeah again c11 same thing it's it's pretty much what it was yeah. before and it's just they're controlling basically what you can see and can't see but yeah i just yeah i mean one of the, one of the good things that happened um after the emergencies act was invoked was the quick response from legal groups, both left and right, you know, we had the Canadian Constitutional Foundation, you had uh, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, one fairly right and one traditionally left, both kind of rising up, challenging the issues in court. Um, that's, to me, that's kind of an, an, an antibody that the, that the body politic gives off in a liberal democracy. Um, and we saw it acting pretty quickly. So I, I remain hopeful that if these these laws, as, as you know, if, if they are as bad as you describe, or even half as bad as you described, um, you know, our, our courts would get involved. I don't, I don't love the idea of court setting policy, but uh, they do act as, as safeguards in certain respects. And I certainly hope that true liberals don't get away with curtailing speech. Yeah, no. And I mean, like I've ever since you did, um, what was it? Uh, the, the Islamophobia motion there, uh, M103. Yeah, and yeah. yep. As yeah. soon as he did that, and like you, if you read that one, it was it said, "Oh, we're going to take a whole government approach to, you know, uh, curb racism." I'm like, "Well, the only way you can do that is if you control speech." I'm like, "Yeah, it's a motion, but you're laying the foundation for for legislation. We're getting it now." Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm 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 on the record. I've I've been on television arguing this. I've written articles about this. Um, I I I think it's a worrying development. Like anti-Muslim animus is a real thing, and it should be combated. Islamophobia is much harder to define. And the problem with that motion was like it just refused to define it, yeah. um, despite all the calls. Right, and I think that. Motion could have been fixed if it focused on animus directed at particular people because of their faith. Um, why somebody like Akar Khalid, the MP that championed that motion, why she wouldn't put that definition there, um, I, I don't know. But I, I think that's that's the issue: is you're you're almost being deliberately vague on the definition, um, and that that vagueness can certainly be abused by um, anybody that wants to. Yeah, and clamp, clamp down on speech. That's also the like that recent attack on the mosque. Like you know, oh, yep. blah blah blah. We condemned the mosque, and like you know, hate has no place in Canada. But they never mentioned the attacker was a Muslim, right? And this was just whatever a few days ago, and so never mentioned that the attacker was a Muslim. So, you know, I if if it was <clears throat> whatever your you know. Hip, um, like a whatever, sorry, like a skinhead white supremacist, whatever, a guy with like swastikas tattooed all over him. They would have made so much of that. Sorry, which which attack there, are you there referring was, to? Because I can think of the London one, and then there was the one in Quebec City. Neither of which oh, there, was there, the attacker was not Muslim. Was there, there, there was one, one just, very recently? Oh, how how was it possible that I'd missed this story? Um, I'm almost embarrassed that I don't know about this. Uh, okay, if I'll, I'll find it and I'll. There was yeah, I mean, because it was. I mean, I I got I saw it um 
Trudeau put out the, the statement on it uh, a couple of days back and I saw it because it was a friend of mine, um, Yasmin Mohammed. She had, she'd commented on it and she's like, well, why don't you mention the fact that the guy is a Muslim and I'm trying to see if I can find that. Yeah, hatchet wielding attacker. I'm just googling this quickly. Attack on Mississauga Mosque. Yes, you're right. I don't, I don't know why this is just not uh, picked up on my radar. But again, I think part of the reason why this has been less widely reported is just, as you say, it just kind of doesn't fit that neat narrative. But no, I mean, I, the, the, the whole media can go on for. There's just so much. I mean, there was. No, honestly, if I started on this, I, I'd go on a rant. Because <laughs> I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. If you want to let people know uh, where they can get a hold of you, uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter at k shrooz k s h a h r o o z um, or z if you're American. I am. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's where I do most of my scribbling. And uh, if I publish something in newspapers or do television interviews, as I do from time to time, I, I tend to post it there. So place to find me. Well, I'll put all of your links and everything in the description. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Kaveh. It was great talking to you. Oh, my, likewise. Thank you so much. This was great. Thanks a lot. And thanks everyone for listening.